you, yes you, are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing specifically today. We're on our third episode of Erasure by Mr. Percival Everett, and I am recording this the day that episode two comes out, and it won't be out until next week, of course, so by the time I talk about the things that happened this week, it'll be old news. And I don't know how much I'm going to talk about that happened this week, honestly. Because a lot of times what happens is I build up things that I think I want to talk about on the podcast throughout the week. And then when I get to record the podcast, I don't really remember them or I don't care as much. And this week has been interesting because people on Twitter have just been so so much and you could say that I'm so so much too and that's fine at times I very much am I admit to being a very independent yet annoying person and I don't really care how many burn how many burns how many bridges I burn on Twitter and if that wasn't evident from my over 2,000 accounts that I've blocked I don't know what that tells you People act surprised when they are a jerk or they're annoying or they're just flat out rude to me and I block them. And that always amuses me. You know, I have someone screenshot it and send me a DM and say, hey, such and such is talking about you and I don't really give a shit. But I've got over 12,000 people following me and that doesn't make me a big deal, but it does mean that I encounter a lot of different people. And I follow a lot of people. I follow over 9,000 people. And a lot of those people, sure, I have no idea who the hell they are. Most of those people have no idea who the hell they are. But I try to be nice and cordial. And then someone will respond something to one of my tweets, and then I'll push them on it, or I'll gaslight them or something because I want to have fun with them or because they've gotten on my nerves before. You know, I try to give people some leeway on to how much of, on my nerves they can get. But people don't realize that when you block them, it's not really a big deal. It just means they don't want to talk to you anymore. They'd rather not interact with you ever again. And since we're all strangers on the internet, who the fuck cares? I mean, people who get offended by being blocked are literally justifying the reason for their block. Right there. And if you block me, I'm probably not going to tweet about it. I don't think I've ever tweeted about someone blocking me. You know, a lot of times I'll get on my feed and people will say, someone that I've been talking to for years blocked me and I have no idea why. Or occasionally you'll block someone and they'll DM someone to DM you. Hey, I'm sorry, la-di-da. It's... Just all unnecessary bullshit. Like, get over yourself. It's just the internet. And Twitter really doesn't make that much difference in the world, believe it or not. This podcast doesn't make any difference in the world. That's for goddamn sure. But I'm not looking to make a difference. I'm just looking to exist and promote my writing and talk about art, music, literature. You know, that shit. This week I was thinking about recording another album. And for those of you who are unaware, a few episodes ago I played 
a good chunk of my my latest album, You Need a Mint. I'm recording under the name Lurking Vowel. You can listen to that album either on Dropbox, you can download it there, or you can stream it on SoundCloud. I've been thinking about forking out however much I need to use either CD Baby or something to upload my music to Spotify. But I kind of already know what will happen. A few people will listen. One of those people, let's say 10 people listen. At least one of those people is going to feel the need to tell me that they hate it or that they think it sucks. Fine. But if I fork out, you know, 50, 100, 200 bucks, whatever it takes to get an album on Spotify. I know it doesn't take 200 bucks. But to only have a few people listen to it, well, that's 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 200 bucks I could have saved. You know, I could have used that for something else. And I'm not making music to make money. So having another dumb income that's pennies on the dollar, like my books, that's useless to me. The only reason why I self-publish is because I want more people to read my books. If a million people told me they wanted to read my book for free on a website and I just could copy and paste it on there, I would. It does not matter to me that you're able to hold the book. It doesn't matter to me that you're able to put the book on your Kindle. By the way, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go on Amazon and buy my books on Kindle for 99 cents. If you don't have a Kindle, you can download the Kindle app on your smartphone. And if you don't have a phone and you have a laptop or an iPad, well, you can read it there. So there's my plug. I've plugged both my music and my writing. I have short films too, but I don't plug those because who the fuck cares? Anyway... Where are we going with this today? Erasure, Percival Everett. You know, me talking about salty things, that fits in with Erasure. So, it's not like I'm totally out of my element today. We're on page 61 at the moment. I called my agent to check on the status of my novel, and he had no good news for me. Three more editors had turned it down. Too dense, one had said. Not for us, a simple reply from another. And... The market won't support this kind of thing from the third. So what now, I asked. I don't know what to tell you, Yule said. If you could just write something like the second failure again, the ice clinked in his glass. What are you telling me, I asked. I'm not telling you anything. Second failure. My realistic novel. It was received nicely and sold rather well. It was about a young black man who can't understand why his white-looking mother is ostracized by the black community. She finally kills herself and he realizes that he must attack the culture and so becomes a terrorist, killing blacks and whites who behave as racist. I hated writing the novel. I hated reading the novel. I hated thinking about the novel. I went to what had been my father's study and perhaps still was his study, but now it was where I worked. I sat and stared at Juanita Mae Jenkins' face on Time magazine. The pain started in my feet and coursed through my legs, up my spine, and into my brain, and I remembered passages of Native Son and the color purple and Amos and Andy, and my hands began to shake. The world opening around me, tree roots trembling on the ground outside, people in the street shouting, Dent! Axe! Foe! Scree! Fav! 
and I was screaming inside, complaining that I didn't sound like that, that my mother didn't sound like that, my father didn't sound like that. And I imagined myself sitting on a park bench counting the knives in my Switchblade collection, and a man came up to me and he asked me what I was doing and my mouth opened and I couldn't help what came out. Wafo, you be axin'. I put a page in my father's old manual typewriter. I wrote this novel, a book on which I knew I could never put my name. So we finally got into the novel within a novel. And I don't know how much of the novel, my pathology, later retitled as Fuck, I'm going to read. Now, I will say that in both classes where I studied this novel, we had a long discussion about Stagger Lee, because it's an old song, Stagger Lee, Stagger Lee. There's a whole history to that name. So Everett is toying with both metafiction and the form of the novel. And the novel within the novel is very short, just like Push by Sapphire. So you, it's not like it's going to take you an hour to read the damn thing. But my pathology is his intentionally offensive work of art. It's intended to be terrible. It's intended to sell. But if you were to ask Monk when he was writing it, do you think that this is going to sell a lot? He'll probably say, I don't know. I don't think so. I'm about to do something that's unprecedented. I've never done this before on the podcast. I am bringing another book into the discussion. And it won't come as a surprise to you because it's Push by Sapphire, of which I own a copy and it has several dog ears in it. But what you may not always realize is that I also have writings that I've done on both Erasure and Push. So before I read my pathology or Maybe I should read Push first, and then I will read you this quote-unquote cultural artifact that I wrote in 2019. And I think it has its origins in 2014 when I originally read the book. But I actually bought Push from the same little used bookstore that I bought Erasure in, so that's ironic. So the first page begins as this. I was left back when I was 12 because I had a baby for my father. That was in 1983. I was out of school for a year. This is going to be my second baby. My daughter got Down syndrome. She's retarded. I had got left back in the second grade too when I was seven because I couldn't read and I still peed on myself. I should be in the 11th grade getting ready to go into 12th grade so I can go and graduate, but I'm not. I'm in the ninth grade. This book was a cultural phenomenon. The movie based on this book was a cultural phenomenon, and you can partially thank Oprah for that, of course, but people complain about Fifty Shades of Grey and the writing style in that book. This book is actually considered literature by some people, something that you should study in an academic setting. My name is Clarice Precious Jones. I don't know why I'm telling you that. Guess because 
I don't know how far I'm going to go with this story or whether it's even a story or why I'm talking, whether I'm going to start from the beginning or right here or two weeks from now. So we have our introduction. It's a page long. You don't really need to hear anything else. My hand slipped down in the dishwater, grabbed the butcher knife. She better not hit me. I ain't lying. If she hit me, I stab her ass to death. You hear me? So, this is the kind of writing that we're encountering in Push by Sapphire. And there's a whole chapter about her having her kid. There's diary entries and shit. Letters. Dear Precious, Are you saying you and Abdul need to take an HIV test? Well, tell me how... Tell me as much as you feel comfortable, Miss Rain. Blue woman. Who teched me, who helped me, I don't want. To sigh it hard to explain, I never tell me whole store. Yes, I need tests for aid. I scared. That's all for now. I'm not putting on an accent. I'm not making fun of this. I'm reading you what's written in here. What's astounding is that this is... This whole book is supposed to be written from Precious's perspective. None of her language is nearly this broken in the book until you get to the letters later in the book. So why do we have all these purposeful misspellings throughout the novel when her actual writing style is this bad? There's a lot of, a lot of things about this book that don't make sense. And it's, it's just a piece of shit. <laughs> I'm sorry if you like Push by Sapphire, but this book is terrible. So, I'm going to read you what I wrote back in 2019, if I can pull it up. Juanita Mae Jenkins represents Sapphire, the author of Push, who influences Everett to write My Pathology, the short novel within Erasure. Sapphire creates the character Precious, who symbolizes the lower-class African-American and writes in an urban dialect as a statement on poverty and black culture. Just as Monk despises Jenkins' novel, Everett responds to Sapphire's generalization through my pathology and Monk's second persona, Stag Lee. Novel, Sapphire's novel presents an extreme and outlandish point of view on the poor African-American. Push commences, and I read the passage, whatever. Sapphire describes an incestuous relationship, an inbred child, poor education, and establishes Precious's blunt yet unintelligent nature in the novel's first paragraph. Jenkins' simplistic prose and hyperbolic storyline garner her book sales and national acclaim, and the mainstream audience buys her story as authentic. Sapphire puts together so many melodramatic elements that push verges on parody. However, neither Monk nor Ellison relate to Precious, while she supposedly represents a real black experience, Sapphire grounds little of push in reality. Sapphire's argument relies on society placing African Americans in Precious's position, but Monk originates in a family of doctors. Monk never starves or blames someone else when he fails because his decisions rather than his race affect his lifestyle. In response to the mainstream and Sapphire's generalization, Everett writes... The fear, of course, 
is in that denying or refusing complicity in the marginalization of black riders, I ended up on the very distant and very other side of a line that is imaginary at best. I didn't write as an act of testimony or social indignation. Monk acknowledges his alienation as a writer because he refuses the tropes and stereotypes Sapphire and Jenkins play upon. The mainstream audience not only disregards his novels as too complex, but because Monk refuses to write from an African-American perspective. I guess that's the whole podcast summed up in a short paper. We have some context for my pathology. The first chapter is not entitled O-N-E. It is titled W-O-N. Mama, look at me, and Tardis, and she call us human sloth. That's how it all start up. Human sloth, she say. You little motherfuckers ain't nothing but human sloth. I looks at her, and I'm wondering what sloth means, and I don't like the look on her face. So I get up from the chair I've been sitting in, and I walk across the kitchen and grab a big knife from the counter. She say, and what you gonna do with that, human sloth? And I stab mama. I put the knife in her stomach and pull it out red, and she look at me like she say, why you stab me? And I stab mama again. Blood be all over the floor, and on the, fl- on the table, drip, drip, dripping down her legs. And my baby sister starts screaming. And I says, why you be screaming, baby girl? And she looks at me and say it because I be stabbing on mama. I look at my hands and they all covered with blood. And I realize I don't know what going on. So I stab mama again. I stab her because I scared. I stab mama because I love her. I stab mama because I hate her. Cause I love her. Cause I hate her. Cause I ain't got no daddy. Then I walk out the kitchen and stand outside leaving mama crawling around on the linoleum trying to hold in her guts. I stands out on the sidewalk just dripping blood like a motherfucker. I look up at the sky and I try to see Jesus but I can't. Then I wonder which one of my faux babies I'm gonna go see. I wake up and I'm just soaked in sweat. Been sweating like a fucking pig. Two things here. Everett is a creative writing professor. He's well aware of the rules that creative writing professors set in their classes. He's broken two of them here. One, he's using a dialect. Two, he started his book, his short story, his whatever, with a dream sequence. So, the other things you're not supposed to do are start with an alarm clock going off and you hitting it. Don't end a book or a story saying it and then it was all a dream. Just bullshit like that. My name is Van Gogh Jenkins. That is V-A-N space G-O. And I'm 19 years old and I don't give a fuck about nobody. Not you, not my mama, not the man. The give a fuck about nobody, not you, not my mom. <laughs> Jesus. The world don't give a fuck about nobody, so why should I? And what I'm going to do instead of going to work over at that Jew motherfucker's warehouse on Central is go over to the high school and wait for Rexall's mama. I must stop here and say that this is not me being anti-Semitic. This is not 
Percival Everett being anti-Semitic. This is not Monk being anti-Semitic. This is Monk, Ellison, and Percival Everett. They are mocking the racism within the stereotypical black community. Within the past year, we've seen several attempts to cancel African-American celebrities who have made anti-Semitic statements. And not a whole lot has really occurred from that, you know. Um, I don't really know what to say about it other than it's unfortunate. And there's been a, a rise in social media trying to raise awareness for anti-Semitism throughout the world. And as someone who grew up in the rural South was taught about the Holocaust a lot and read all sorts of different things and is aware of the South's history. Um, Anti-Semitism hasn't ceased in my lifetime for sure. I mean, there's one Jewish person I know, I know of in town. If you live around here and you want to go to a temple, you have to go to Atlanta. So anti-Semitism is still very prevalent around here. It's prevalent in the world. So be mindful of your Jewish friends because the world has not really gotten over anti-Semitism. There are still many, many people who hate Jews. Anyway. Her name is Cleana. She's a dreamer. Always talking about graduating and going to the community college and being a nurse or some shit. Her dreaming don't bother me none. I hope she do make herself some real money someday. But she be acting funny a lot. Like she ain't. she think I ain't good enough for her ass. Fuck her. All I know is I can go over to her house when her mama gone and cut me out of peace. She ain't gone. She ain't too good then. Jesus Christ. It's hard to read this. So I'm trying to find different parts of this to read. Wondering what parts to skip because I don't want to spend the whole episode reading my pathology, believe it or not. I mean, there's a long passage of people just saying, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you over and over again. I mean, that's that's prevalent. He has children. I think one of them is named Tylenol. It's just... It's difficult to read. There's a rape scene. There's uh, him impregnating a white girl. On page 76, you can see what I was talking about. Fuck you, 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 fuck you. Over and over again. And then lots of N-words and what have you. So it's not meant to be highbrow literature. It's making fun of writers like Sapphire who are profiting on really bad impressions of what they think they have seen or experienced within these low-income black communities, which is bullshit. And... Here I am flipping through here, and it's difficult to even find something that is 
worth reading out loud because a lot of it is just back and forth, back and forth. So, I mean, on chapter five, F-I-B-E, so I get to the girl's house and her big fat uncle be asleep on the couch, sneaking a Colt 45. She giggle as we sneak past him to the back of the house. I tells her to shut up. Man, her uncle is big, so I show enough don't want his ugly ass waking up. This is the kind of stuff that Everett is writing through Monk, and it's satire. Um, my fear with reading satire is that someone in the audience won't get that it's satire, and they'll wonder why a white man is reading this kind of shit, not realizing that Percival Everett is an African-American writer who is critiquing other African-American writers who are essentially profiting off their own race and racism, people that perceive them as lesser and them playing into that in a sense. I've skipped ahead to page 113 where we get to where Van Gogh is on this Oprah Maury style show. Let's get into it. Snooky Kane, that fat bitch, be standing in the middle of the audience and she say, what a tough audience. Welcome to the show, Van Gogh. Look at that expression on his face. We told Van Gogh that he was coming here to meet someone who had a crush on him. Are you surprised, Van Gogh? I look at the camera. Yeah, I surprised, I say. Today's show is called, You Give Me the Baby. Now where's the money? So, where is the money, Van Gogh? These four ladies say, you have never given them any cash for their children. I take care of my babies, I say. Well, that's a different story from the one we've been hearing, she say. I don't know what you've been hearing, but I takes care of my babies. You's a damn liar, Renisha shout. You ain't gave me a penny, you dog. The audience laugh. Sit down and shut the fuck up, I say. You can't use that kind of language on the television. Snooky Kane say, and I can't believe you would say that in front of your children. But the hoe be lying, I say. Who you calling a hoe, Renisha say. You bitch. See, as I'm reading this, I'm cringing because, for one thing, I shouldn't be reading it. But also, oh, Jesus, Mary and Joseph. The whole punchline of this novel as we'll see later on, is that people take this seriously. People think that Monk is a genius because of this book. So let's la wrap it up on my pathology. Snooky Kane put the microphone in front of that fat white dude. He can't respect these here women because he don't even have respect for his own mother. Good point, Snooky Kane say. But wait, Snooky Kane say to the audience, then to me. Van Gogh Jenkins? We have another surprise for you. Yeah, what that be? Where do you work now? Snooky King asks. I'm in between jobs, I say. Don't you work for a family called Dalton? She asks. I don't say nothing. Do you know the Daltons? She asks. Yeah, I know them, I says. What about Penelope Dalton? Snooky asks. I looks at the door on the stage and then behind me. What Penelope gonna be on the show for? Is she here, I ask? No, Van Gogh, she's not here. But these gentlemen are, Snooky King say. And two policemans come through the door to my right. It seems you stepped over the line last night, Van Gogh, Snooky King say, stepping down to beside my mama. I'm sorry, Mrs. Jenkins, she says. 
the cops is walking at me. Stooky King say, it seems our guest raped a woman last night. At least that's the allegation. I jump up out the chair and run for the other door. There'll be two cops there too. Fuck. I run for the back of the stage and I see Mad Dog's face and he just as cool as shit. He don't even get up. He say, they ain't after me. I run through the audience. That person tried to stop me, but I runs right through him. Kick him with my knee and he be go down. People be trying to grab me and I get thrown back to the front. I'm next to mama. Mama be crying. I'm right next to Stooky Kane. She don't look real. These policemen are about to grab me. I drop down on my knees and start crawling through legs. I'm tripping people and knocking them over. I get to the front door in the back and punch a security guard. I run. I get out that building. I run to the studio and pass the parking lot and down the steep bank and across the highway and some railroad tracks. My heart is beating, beating, beating. Oh my God, there's another chapter. We're not reading it, okay? We are not reading more of this book. I cannot. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Holy fuck. There's two more chapters. There's ten, there's ten chapters in this fucking My Pathology book. And then we get to chapter seven in Erasure. We're on chapter seven. It was the middle of July and Washington was a big bowl of soup. I was packed in the study counting time to the air conditioning unit in the window. I picked up the heavy black telephone and called my agent who recognized my voice and said without much pause, Are you crazy? No, not quite, I said. Why do you ask? This thing you sent me, are you serious? Yeah, why not? You'll notice I didn't put my name to it. I did notice that but I'm the one who has to try and sell it with my name. I have to work in this town. Look at this shit that's published. I'm sick of it. This is an expression of my being sick of it. I understand that, Monk, and I appreciate your position, and I even admire the parody, but who's going to publish this? The people who publish the stuff you hate are going to be offended, so they won't take it. Hell, everyone's going to be offended. The idiots ought to be offended. I looked over at the cluttered secretary desk across the room. On the lowered surface below the encased medical books was a gray box. So, what do you want me to do? Send it out. Straight or with some kind of qualification? Do you want me to tell them it's a parody? Send it straight, I said. If they can't see it's a parody, fuck them. Okay, I'll send it out. A couple of times anyway. But... No more than that. This thing scares me. I understand, I tell him. I relate to Monk's anger. He sees that the world is not kind to those who take the craft seriously. People who spend years working on something or have the experience to put out quality material are not as prioritized or celebrated as those who just put out stuff that sells. And unfortunately, stuff that sells is sort of like the mainstream movies that you go see in the movie theater. It's stuff that you can sit down and eat popcorn while you watch. You know, Eddie Izzard had a whole bit about the difference between American cinema and British cinema. And he said that British cinema had great actors, great writing, but it was boring. You'd sit there watching these people counting matches and giving 
incredible performances, but then you'd go to an American movie and you'd see all these explosions and, oh, fuck you, fuck this, and you'd be eating your popcorn and enjoying yourself. And writing is a lot like that. And the two aren't necessarily exclusive. You know, you can have something exciting and very well written. That's what I've tried to do in my work. But I'm also not saying that quality literature is boring. I do happen to find writers like Margaret Atwood and Toni Morrison boring, but that's a different story, and I've already acknowledged that they're amazing authors. And Everett is able to put out quality material that's both entertaining and genre-bending. He is a genius, and sometimes his genius can be a little overboard. You know, Glyph, for me, was an example of that because he was critiquing academia. He was going in for it, but he went in, he went in for it too hard. It was too much. A lot of people probably disagree, but I think that his point was made, and sometimes that's all that really matters. Sit down, Yule said. I'm sitting, I said, though I was standing and looking out the window. I sent it over to Random House. Yes? I didn't offer any qualifiers or anything. Yes? $600,000. You're kidding me, I said sitting now. Paula Batterman, a senior editor over there, wants to meet Mr. Lee. Tell them he's shy. I was elated and ready to be angry. Tell me what she said. She called it true to life. Called it an important book. What did she say about the writing? She said it was magnificently raw and honest. She said it's the kind of book that they will be reading in high schools 30 years from now. I said nothing. Monk, I looked out the window. Monk, this is what you wanted, right? Random house. Yeah. This is really fucked up, you know that. You don't want the deal. Of course I want the deal, I said. Just tell them that Stagger Lee is painfully, pathologically shy and that he'll communicate with them through you. I don't know if that will cut it. It'll cut it. Is this an instance of Monk actually writing satire, or is this an instance of Monk writing what he think will sell? Because he doesn't turn down the money. $600,000 in early 2000s, Money. I think this might be based in the late 90s, according to his curriculum, Vitae. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money now. If you offered me that now, before the book was even out, that would be fucking amazing, wouldn't it? Now, I've had this discussion on the podcast before. I have talked about my Twitter polls and Twitter questions that I did last year. Things like... Would you write a 40-page love scene for $10,000? There were people who said, I've written love scenes that are longer than that, which was mind-blowing to me. I mean... I have made my intentions clear through irony and sarcasm, and people will come to me on Twitter unironically and say, yes, I have done that before. 
writing a book specifically for the intention of making money, well, some of us don't do that. Now, there's nothing wrong with writing for a living. We all wish we could do that. But it takes not only a special person to be able to pinpoint what will sell, as in the case of Monk with my pathology, but it also takes a special kind of person to purposefully write that book to sell. There's a difference. So, what do we have to say about Monk at this point? What about his integrity? Now, as a fan of the novel, someone who loves Monk despite his flaws, and he is very flawed, I will say that he did not write this with the intention of making money. He wrote it out of anger. He sent it to his agent. He probably didn't think that it would go anywhere. Pissing people off would have been payment enough for him. But then, someone at Random House reads it and says, Hey, here's $600,000. Yeah, he's going to take that. And if it means never appearing in public as Stag Lee ever, well, that's fine. Um, Of course he does. If you've never read this book before and you're wondering about Monk's integrity... He plays the part later on. Next episode, I want to cover this beach trip that Monk goes on with his sister and his mother. But before that, I want to, I want to read this passage. I wondered how far I should take my stagly performance. I might, in fact, become a Reinhardt, walking down the street and finding myself in store windows. I yam what I yam. I could throw a fake beard and wig on and do the talk shows, play the game, walk the walk, shoot the jive. No, I couldn't. I would let Mr. Lee continue his reclusive just out of the big house ways. I would talk to the editor a few more times then disappear like down a hole. This, of course, never takes place because Monk ends up... We'll get to it, okay? I've already talked about it. Next week we're going to talk about the beach trip because it includes one of my favorite scenes in the book. So there is going to be a part four of Erasure. Now, I want to take the time. This point of the podcast, if you've listened this far, you're probably one of my regular listeners. That's great. We're not going to talk about Erasure right now. Let's talk about Twitter. Let's talk about writing and the writing community. What it means to be an author. Supporting other authors. Now, there's a lot of false positivity on Twitter. You know it, I know it. There are people who have pages and pages and pages of them just giving generic responses to tweets to up their engagement. But... Are they really engaging with people? No. When people follow people, follow, 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 follow. And then after a day, you look back, you see who followed you back. Then you go through who you're following and the people who aren't following you back, you unfollow them. That's how the game was played early on when I 
started my Twitter account in early 2019. When I got to somewhere between 1,000 and 5,000 followers, I stopped following people. I want to say it was around 1,000. I got to 1,000 pretty quick. There are people who still, even when they get over 10,000 followers, still play that game of following, 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 and then looking back and unfollowing. There are people who artificially bump up their followers' numbers by unfollowing people who have followed them back, and that's shitty to do, and when people do that to me, I block them. So I've blocked a lot of people. It's not just that. It's also people who have been rude what have you. Oftentimes, people lash out at you, they screenshot your profile, they tag you even though you've blocked them. Twitter has a massive issue with how they deal with blocking. Facebook got it right. If you're blocked on Facebook, they can't see you, they can't look at your profile. If someone tags you in something, it doesn't link to anything. It's like you don't exist. If you block someone on Facebook or you're blocked, it's like you don't even exist on there. That's the beauty of being blocked on Facebook and Instagram to a degree. And Twitter, for some reason, will show you that you've been blocked. They will also allow you to still interact with tweets with the account that has blocked you. And of course, the thing about it is the difference between Facebook and Twitter, it's way easy to put at and then someone's username into Google, instantly find their Twitter profile and look at their public Twitter profile and see what they're writing. It's easy to create many different alts. This has happened before. I've blocked someone and then they've come back with an alt. This has happened multiple times. And these are people who call themselves writers, who participate in this faux positive atmosphere. They say that they're trying to support one another. Supporting an author means buying their work. It's not just, yay! No. When you go to a football game, you buy a ticket. It's not just sitting in the stands that is being supportive. Okay, I can tell you as someone who not only played different sports as a kid, I wrestled for a few years too. Wrestling's a sport, but it's different. You're not really focused on people in the stands. You're focused on the game. So there could be no one there. The game would be no less important. But with authors... You need to actively read their stuff. You can't just say, yay, from the sidelines. You have to engage with their work, buy their work. And I'm not saying that you're not a good person if you're just being positive and not buying other people's work. It's not what I'm saying. But when you brag about being supportive, you say you want to be supportive, being supportive is not just positive nonsense in the hopes that other people will buy your work because that's what the name of the game is with a lot of these people. 
And a lot of the people in the hashtag writing community don't even fucking write. If they do write, a lot of times they never publish their work. You have to ask the question, who's really reading anymore? Who's reading us? Who is our audience? And if there are so many writers, some of them who brag about not reading or not liking reading, well, what are we all doing this for? We're all doing it for people to read us, right? But if we put our work out there and no one wants to read it, then, you know, there's writing because you enjoy it. There's writing for profit. But the thing is, is that many of us want more than one person to enjoy what we're putting out there. So when you work on a novel for nine years, is that just for yourself? You know, I wrote a novel for me. And it's a great thing that people bought and read Demise of the Trinity. I appreciate those readers, the people who bought my book, the people who downloaded it for free. I'm very appreciative of them. Now, the thing about that is, despite the fact that there are people still buying that book and still reading that book, it has, of course, slowed down significantly. And in a few months, I don't know that anyone will even remember that book. And what, what was it all for, really? So, these are questions that I have to ask myself. And I have to come up with the answer myself. But the answer isn't, you do it for you. In a sense... To a degree, but at the same time, no. And I've already made the mental decision. The mental decision. I never want to be a famous author. No. But it would be nice to have a small fan base. People who look forward to the next thing you put out. That's really all you, you really need for inspiration to go forward with self-publishing. Otherwise, we should just be like J.D. Salinger and write, put it away in a filing cabinet, and move on. He was probably right, honestly. Whatever your reasoning for listening to this, I'm thankful for you, the audience. And next week, we will continue Erasure by Percival Everett. Happy weekend and happy reading. Thank you.